And now, for the show reflecting on classic radio, Hollywood 360, with your host, Carl Amari. I can see you right now in the kitchen, bending over a hot stove, but I can't see the stove. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. <laughs> Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? Then you won't be angry. I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. What do you do, Carl? Carl is a inventor slash entrepreneur. Yeah, I'm still looking for that home run, you know? I mean, when I saw the iPod first time, I was like, yeah, I gotta kick myself. That was so hard on him. What's your name? Carl, my name. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Roger, ready to move out. Hello, everyone. I'm Carl Amari, and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents the best in classic radio. This hour on Hollywood 360, we'll continue our salute to Abraham Lincoln and Valentine's Day with part two of The Great Gildersleeve from 1953. Then Orson Welles stars as our 16th president in part one of an hour-long episode of the Mercury Theater on the Air from 1938. With me, as always, is my co-host, Lisa Wolf. What's up, Lisa? Hi, Carl. Have you seen these surprise boxes that we're offering to our listeners? I have, and I love the idea of a surprise because we know we all love classic radio. Yes. We know we love the Twilight Zone CDs, and, of course, we love classic TV on DVDs. Yeah. So the surprise is just what's in it, but with, what, $150 worth of merchandise in every box, I think there's a lot to love in each box. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, folks, if you don't know what we're talking about, all you have to do is go to our website, Hollywood360radio.com. When you go there, there will be a pop-up that talks about our surprise boxes that are available to you. For only $39.99 each, you will get $150 worth of classic radio shows on CD or classic movies and classic TV shows on DVD or $150 worth of Twilight Zone radio drama CDs. It's all there. It's all explained. Just go to our website, Hollywood360radio.com. Check out the pop-up. You'll learn all about the surprise boxes. And when you're at our website, do scroll down and see our banner for our new app. You don't want to miss our new app, which gives you 10 free classic radio shows. Do log on and check out our free app. Please download it so you'll have it forever and ever. All right, it's time now for the conclusion to The Great Gildersleeve. Let's go back to February 11, 1953. This is called The Mayor's Valentine's Party. It stars Willard Waterman as The Great Gildersleeve. Well, it seems something always comes along to upset The Great Gildersleeve's apple cart. If something doesn't come along, he manages to upset it himself. Unc, how did you happen to invite two girls to the same party? Leroy, I didn't invite both of them. I invited Miss Tuttle. Didn't I, Bertie? All I know is I saw Miss Ransom in the market and she said you was taking her. Well, the mayor put me on the spot. The minute I introduced him to Leela, he assumed she was going to the party with me. Why didn't you just tell the mayor you already had a date? Leroy, it's not too easy to say you have another date in front of Leela. <laughs> she's counting big on going, all right. Yeah. She was telling me in the market what she's going to wear. Oh? Miss Ransom said she was wearing the same outfit that knocked them dead last year at the Mardi Gras. Where's that? 
Leroy, that's a big blowout in New Orleans every year. Yeah. What did she wear, Bertie? Black lace over peach-colored satin. Leroy. Okay. Go on, Bertie. That's it. Black lace over peach-colored satin and peeping over a black lace fan. Well, Leela always did know how to dress. When Miss Ransom glides in, I can see that party stop. She's going to knock them dead, peeping over that black lace fan. Yeah, all right, Bertie. Miss Gilsey, you know Miss Ransom's going to do that party? Yes, Bertie. That's right. She's going to knock them dead, peeping over that black lace fan. <laughs> well, there must be some way out of this. Why don't you get smart and get out of town? Don't <laughs> be silly. I got a good excuse for you. What is it? Tell your girls our great Dane is homesick and have to take him back to Canada. Don't be ridiculous. There's only one thing to do. Yeah? Just go over to Leela's and tell her the truth. Truth never hurt anybody. Well, in case the girls don't know that, which hospital will you be in? Leroy. I should have done this in the first place. I'll just explain to Leela that I had a date with Grace all along. What can she do? I wonder what you will do. Well, I still say the truth never hurt anybody. Nice quiet day. Why, Frogmore! Hello, Leela. I didn't expect to see you this afternoon. Yeah, I want to talk to you about something. Uh, May I come in? For a minute. You're just in time to take me to the beauty parlor. So before you spend the money, let me tell you why I came over. What's happened, Throckmorton? Well, Leela? Leela? I can't take you to the mayor's party. Would you mind repeating that? Yes, I would. It was hard enough to say the first time. (laughs) Well, why this change of heart, I'd like to know. There's no change of heart. It's just that I never did ask you to go to the party. What's wrong, Martin? When the mayor met you in the office, he just assumed I was bringing you. As a matter of fact, I had already made other plans. Who is she? Not that I wouldn't just soon take you, Leela. Or even rather. Who is she? Well, Leela, when I don't take you out, you know who I take out. Yeah, I mean... Trot, Martin, I think Grace Tuttle is a lovely girl. Oh, I knew you'd understand. Of course I do. But I wonder if his honor, Mayor Terwilliger, will. Mayor Terwilliger? Your boss. You will. He's expecting you to bring me to his party. Well, I know he suggested it. And if I were you, I'd consider that a command performance. What? What would the mayor say if he knew you were disobeying his orders and trying to push me out for some other girl? But, Leela... Oh, I'd hate to see you make a faux pas that might blight your entire career. Oop. Leela, we're just wasting our time talking. Oh? Come on, let's get you to the beauty parlor. Well, there's only one thing left to do. Break the date with Grace. I'll just tell her the truth. I'll explain that the mayor invited Leela, and he's expecting me to bring her. I had nothing to do with it. Throckmorton. Hello, Grace. What a surprise. Won't you come in? Thank you. Let me take your hat. No, thanks. I'll just hold it. Uh, Grace, I don't imagine the mayor's party means too much to you. 
you have your good books and all. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to going. Grace, I must be honest with you. I'm sorry, but I can't take you. Oh? I thought it best to come and put my cards on the table. You don't have one up your sleeve, do you? <laughs> Grace, you know me better than that. Go on, Throckmorton. You're dealing. Well, it just happens that the mayor made arrangements for me to bring somebody else to his party. I had nothing to do with it. I understand how those things can happen. That's all right. Yeah, at least you had the fun of planning to go. Oh, it's just been ducky. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh... Hope this hasn't put you out too much. Oh, not at all. Of course, I've spent my next six months' salary for a party dress, but that's all right. You Well, maybe they'll take it back. They don't, and worst comes to worst, I can always eat it. <laughs> Looks like ice cream anyway. Grace, I'm sorry about this. I wouldn't have had it happen for the world. Forget it, Throckmorton. Oh, Grace, you're a brick. I suspect I'm a little batty, too. <laughs> well, goodbye. Uh, uh, Throckmorton... Yes? Forgive me for being a bit curious, but is the girl you're taking a relative of the mayor's? A relative? Oh, no. Just a friend of the family, I suppose. Well, he just met her. Yeah, I mean... Yes? Oh, what the heck. You'll find it out anyway. It's Leela. Oh, handsome ransom again. <laughs> she was in my office the other day when the mayor came in. Does she make a practice of visiting your office? You know, she just happened in and the mayor assumed I was taking her to the party. Why? Well... He thought she was my girlfriend. Oh, this was after you asked me to go? Well, yes. Why didn't you lay your cards on their table? Well... Throckmorton, I'm going to trump your ace. What? You're taking me to that party. Oh, <laughs> Well, in 30 minutes, I'm due at Leela's. The terrible thing is I'm also doing graces. Oh, what a nightmare this night's going to be. I guess I'll stop in Peavy's for a cigar. And at the rate I'm smoking, I'd better make it a box. Hello, Peavy. Yeah, hello, Mr. Gildersleeve. What can I do for you this evening? More cigars, Peavy. Very well. Hmm. You've cut quite a figure in that tux. Yeah. Which young lady did you invite to the marriage party? Both of them. Okay. <laughs> I invited Grace, and then the mayor saw me with Leela and suggested I bring her. What could I do? Well, it's a little late to talk about what you could have done. The point is, what are you going to do? Peavy, this is the worst predicament I've ever been in. You don't change. I explained the situation to both girls, but neither one would let me off the hook. <laughs> a big fish like you should be able to get off the hook. <laughs> Peavy, give me a strong Coke. Very well. If I could just think of some good reason for not even showing up. Like an emergency in the water department. Hey, Peavy, do that again. You want two Cokes? No, turn on that carbonated water. I want to hear it fizzle. Well, if it amuses you. Right, George, that water gives me an idea. You going to jump in the reservoir? <laughs> no, I have a bold plan. I'm going to create an emergency right here in your drugstore. Now, now wait a minute, Mr. Gilbert. Yeah, I'll turn on all the faucets behind your fountain, bang in the pipes with a hammer, and then get the mayor on the phone. My, my. You'll hear the water running, and I'll tell him I can't come to his party because I'm taking care of an emergency. 
Right, George is the best idea I ever had. No, no, I wouldn't say that. What if your mayor finds out? Stand aside, Peavy. I'll turn on the faucets and get on the phone. Mr. Gildersleeve, you're making a mistake. There. Doesn't that sound like a broken water main? It sounds like trouble, all right. Now I'll call the mayor. This will get me out of the dates, and the mayor will respect me for staying on the job. Hello? Is Mayor Twilliger there? He isn't? Oh, hello, Mrs. Twilliger. This is Water Commissioner Gildersleeve. Mr. Gildersleeve? Mrs. Twilliger, when the mayor comes home, tell him I won't be able to come to the party. Good evening, Peavy. I have to stay on duty. What's going on? Why is all the water running? Well, uh, there's a big emergency at the water department, Mr. Twilliger. You can hear me at work. I, I can't believe my eyes. Yeah, that's right, Mr. Twilliger. So if you'll express my regrets to the mayor... You say he went down to PB's drugstore? Gildersleeve! Ta- oh! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is Boy Scout Week. So it seems a good time to congratulate the many fine American families everywhere who have encouraged the Scout movement to the point where today its membership is at an all-time high. Yes, sir, there are more than 3,250,000 Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, Explorers, and Adult Leaders. And Leroy... Yeah? I want to congratulate you on your 43rd birthday. 43rd birthday? Me? As a member of the Boy Scouts, my boy. This week, you're celebrating your 43rd birthday. Oh, sure. Hey, Unc. Yes? We need leaders. Have you ever considered joining the Boy Scouts? After what happened to me tonight, I've even thought of joining the Foreign Legion. (laughs) What happened to your two dates? Well, the mayor found escorts for them. They're probably having a wonderful time. What do you suppose the mayor's going to say to you tomorrow? Not a thing, my boy. No? He said it all tonight. (laughs) Good night, folks. (laughs) The Great Gildersleeve is played by Willard Waterman. The show is written by John Elliott and Andy White and is partially transcribed. Included in the cast are Walter Tetley, Lillian Randolph, Mary Schiff, Shirley Mitchell... Stanley Perrar and Dick LeGrand. Musical composition by Jack Meekin. This is John Heaston saying goodnight for the Kraft Foods Company, makers of the famous line of Kraft quality food products. Be sure to listen in next week and every week for the further adventures of The Great Gildersleeve. Tonight, play You Bet Your Life on NBC. And that's The Great Gildersleeve from February 11, 1953. Good Valentine's Day show starring Willard Waterman. It's heard on NBC. Let's take a break. When we come back, it's part one of Abraham Lincoln starring Orson Welles on the Mercury Theater on the Air. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. Hi, Carl Amari here. During the month of February, you can digitally download Classic Radio's Greatest Shows Volume 1, featuring 12 shows including Sam Spade, Amos and Andy, Sherlock Holmes, Escape, Fibber McGee and Molly, Gunsmoke, Inner Sanctum, and more. It's regularly priced at $19.99, but it's yours for only $9.99 via digital download this month only. Also on sale during February at 50% off is the Black Museum Volume 1. 
starring Orson Welles in 12 true crime stories. It's regularly priced at $19.99, but it's yours for only $9.99 via digital download this month only. Visit ClassicRadioStore.com and digitally download Classic Radio's Greatest Shows Volume 1 and the Black Museum Volume 1 at half price. In March, these two collections will go back to full price, so don't miss them while they're on sale during February. Log on to ClassicRadioStore.com to order. And while you're there, download an episode of Suspense absolutely free as our gift to you. That's ClassicRadioStore.com. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Welcome back. I'm Carl Amari. This is Hollywood 360, broadcasting on about 200 radio stations from coast to coast. And we are about to listen to an hour-long broadcast of the Mercury Theater on the Air. Now, we'll listen to half of that show on this edition of Hollywood 360, and then we'll conclude it on our next Hollywood 360 show. Now, the Mercury Theater on the Air was a drama that came to radio in 1938, and it featured the acclaimed New York drama company founded by Orson Welles and John Houseman. Now, these were hour-long radio adaptations of original works and classics of literature. And the supporting casts were the who's who of New York radio. Agnes Moorhead, Martin Gable, Alice Frost, Ray Collins, Everett Sloan, and others. Now, on Halloween Eve, they dramatized the H.G. Wells Martian invasion story, The War of the Worlds, and a news style that created a panic across the nation when many believed that Martians were actually attacking Earth. The publicity led to a national advertiser for Orson Welles. It was Campbell Soup, and it catapulted Welles to stardom in Hollywood as an actor, producer, and director. But this episode is before the War of the Worlds, a few weeks prior to it. Let's go back to August 15, 1938. This is Abraham Lincoln. It stars Orson Welles. Here's the Mercury Theater on the air. The Mercury Theater on the air. The Columbia Broadcasting System takes pleasure once again in bringing you Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in the unique summer series which signalizes radio's first presentation of a complete theatrical producing company. In tonight's performance, the sixth in a group of nine weekly broadcasts, the regular CBS stations are joined by a coast-to-coast network of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Here is Orson Welles himself, the director of the Mercury Theatre, star and producer of these programs, to tell you about tonight's play. Mr. Welles. Wherever you are in the world, an hour and a half from now, there will come to you through these same radio facilities the voice of the President of the United States. Until then, here is another president. His words, at least, which on Monday, August the 15th, 1938, are still entirely alive. And his person, preserved in a fine and very famous play. His words we have collected for this broadcast from many sources. From letters and speeches, debates and proclamations and from the written record of his own private conversation. They amount to a testament of his abiding faith in this, our land of the free. Much of it you will recognize, and much of it is as new as though this microphone were in the White House tonight. (laughs) 
was born February 12th, 1809, in Hardin County, Kentucky. My parents were both in Virginia, but distinguished families, second families, perhaps I should say. My mother, who died in my tenth year, was of a family of the name of Hanks, some of whom now reside in Macon County, Illinois. My paternal grandfather emigrated from Rockingham County, Virginia, to Kentucky, where a year or two later he was killed by the Indians. When I came of age, somehow I could read, write, and cipher to the rule of three. That was all. I have not been to school since. Little advance I now have upon this store of education I've picked up from time to time under the pressure of necessity. I was raised to farm work, which I continued till I was twenty-two. Twenty-one, I came to New Salem, where I remained a year as a sort of clerk in a store. Then came the Black Hawk War, and I was elected a captain of the Volunteers, a success which gave me more pleasure than any I've had since. From 1849 to 1854, I practiced law in Springfield. What I've done since then, pretty well known. If any personal description of me is thought desirable, it may be said I am in height six feet four inches, nearly and lean in flesh, weighing on an average 180 pounds, dark complexion with coarse black hair and gray eyes. No other marks or brands recollected. Yours truly, Abraham Lincoln. That's the first portion of Abraham Lincoln on the Mercury Theater on the Air. More after these words. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Now back to the Mercury Theater on the Air. Gentlemen, you said this was a great evening for me. It is. And I'll say more than I mostly do because it is. I'm likely to go into history now with a great man. For now I know better than any how great he is. I'm plain-looking, and I have a sharp tongue, and I have a mind that doesn't always go in his easy, high way. And that's what history will see, and it will laugh a little and say, Poor Abe Lincoln. That's all right, but it's not all. I've always known when he should go forward and when he should hold back. I've watched and watched. There are women like that, lots of them. But I'm lucky. My work's going farther than Illinois. It's going farther than any of us can tell. I made things easy for him to think and think when we were poor. And now his thinking has brought him to this. They wanted to make him governor of Oregon. And he would have gone and have come to nothing there. I stopped him. Now they're coming from Chicago, from the Republican convention there, to ask him to be president. And I've told him to go. It's a great place for a man to fill. 
You know, it's hard to believe. When I think of the times I've sat in this room of an evening and seen your husband come in, ma'am, with his battered hat and eye fallen off the back of his head hmm. and stuffed with papers that won't go into his pockets and God darning some rascal who'd done him about an assignment or a trespass, why, I can't think he's gone up there into the eyes of the world. Well, <laughs> I do, Samuel. I do, Timothy. Good evening, Abraham. Good evening, Abraham. Well, we'll be going. We only came in to give you good fairing, so to say. Great word you have to speak this evening. Makes a humble body almost afraid of himself, Abraham, to know his friend is to be one of the great ones of the earth, with his yes and no law for these many, many thousands of folk. Makes a man humble. Be chosen so, Samuel. So humble that no man but would say no to such bidding, if he dare. To be president of this people, and trouble gathering everywhere in men's hearts. And the searching thing, bitterness and scorn and wrestling often with men I shall despise, and perhaps nothing truly done at the end. But I must go. Camel, Timothy, just glass that cordial, Mary, before they leave. Yes. May the devil smudge that girl. Susan! Susan Deddington! Where's that darnation cordial? It's all right, Abraham. I told the girl to keep it out. The cupboard's choked with papers. Here you are. <laughs> Poor hospitality for whiskey-drinking rascals like yourselves, but the thought's good. Oh, don't mention it, Abraham. <laughs> we wish you well, Abraham. Our compliments, ma'am. Mm. Samuel? I give you the United States of America and Abraham Lincoln. Thank you. Samuel, Timothy, I drink to the hope of honest friends. Mary, the friendship. I'll need that always, for I have a queer, anxious heart. Give you the United States of America. Well, good night, Abraham. Good night, ma'am. Good night. Good night, night ma'am. Good night, Mr. Stone. Good night, Mr. Cartier. Good night, Samuel. Good night, Timothy. Thanks for coming. You'd better see them in here. Five minutes to seven. You're sure about it, Mary? Yes. Aren't you? We mean to set bonds to slavery. The South will resist. They may try to break away from the Union. If the Union is set aside, America will crumble. Saving of it may mean blood. Who is to shape it all if you don't? There's nobody. I know it. Then go. Go. The gentlemen have come. I'll come to them. I'll send them in. Abraham... I believe in you. I know. I know. I hold... I hold that there is no reason in the world why the Negro is not entitled to all the natural rights enumerated in the Declaration of Independence. The right to life, liberty... And the pursuit of happiness. 
I hold that he is as much entitled to these as the white man and the right to eat the bread without the leave of anybody else which his own hand earns. He is my equal and the equal of every living man. November 6th, 1860. Republican Party 180 out of 303 electoral votes. 1,857,000 out of 4,645,000 popular votes. Lincoln elected president. Fellow citizens of the Senate... House of Representatives, this issue, the right of secession, embraces more than the fate of these United States. It presents to the whole family of men the question whether a constitutional republic or democracy a government of the people by the same people can or cannot maintain its territorial integrity against its own domestic forces. It presents the question whether discontented individuals, too few in numbers to control administration, can always, upon the pretenses or arbitrarily without any pretense, break up their government and thus practically put an end to free government upon the earth. Is there, in all republics, this inherent and fatal weakness? Must a government of necessity be too strong for the liberties of its own people, or too weak? to maintain its own existence? common feeling in the South, Mr. Seward, that as Secretary of State, you are the one man here at Washington to see this thing with large imagination. I say this with no disrespect to the President, but what does his experience of great affairs of state Amount to beside yours, Mr. Seward. My support of the President is, of course, unquestionable, Mr. Jennings. Oh, entirely. But how can your support be more valuable than in lending him your unequaled understanding? You understand, of course, that I can say nothing officially. Uh, these are nothing but informal suggestions. But I may tell you that I am not unsympathetic. I was sure that uh, that would be so. Yes, come in. The President is coming up the stairs, sir. Thank you. This is unfortunate. Say nothing and go at once. Here he is. Good morning, Mr. Seward. Good morning, Mr. Jennings. Good, Good morning, morning, Mr. Mr. President. And um, I'm obliged to you for calling, Mr. Jennings. Uh, good morning. Perhaps Mr. Jennings could spare me ten minutes. It is Say five that. minutes. I'm anxious always for any opportunity to exchange views with our friends of the South. Much enlightenment may be gained in five minutes. Be seated, I beg you, Mr. Seward will allow us. Uh, by all means. 
Uh, shall I leave you? Leave us? But why? I may want your support, Mr. Secretary, if we should not wholly agree. Well, Mr. Jennings, you have messages for us. Uh, Mr. Jennings, in his anxiety for peace, was merely seeking the best channel through which uh, suggestions could be made. To whom? Uh, to the government. The head of the government is here. But, uh, Come, I... sir, what is it? It's this matter of Fort Sumter, Mr. President. Yes? If you withdraw your garrison from Fort Sumter, it won't be looked upon as weakness in you. We believe that the South at heart does not want secession. It wants to establish the right to decide for itself. The South wants the stamp of national approval upon slavery. Can't have it. Mr. President, if I may say so, you don't quite understand. Does Mr. Seward understand? I believe so. You are wrong. He doesn't understand because you didn't mean him to. I don't blame you. You think you're acting for the best. You think you've got an honest case, but I'll put your case for you and I'll put it naked. Many people in this country want abolition. Many don't. But every man, whether he wants it or not, knows it may come. Why does the South propose secession? Because it knows abolition may come and it wants to avoid it. I said the other day that Fort Sumter would be held as long as we could hold it. I said it because I know exactly what it means. I see how it is. You may force freedom as much as you like, but we are to beware how we force slavery. Couldn't be put better, Mr. Jennings. That's what the union means. It is a union that stands for common right. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, do not allow it to break our bonds of affection. That is our answer. Tell them that. Will you tell them that? You are determined? I beg you to tell them. It shall be as you wish. Implore them to order your troops return. You can telegraph it now from here. Will you do that? If you wish it. But it will do no good, Mr. Lincoln. They won't give way. It's a grave decision. Terribly grave. For all of us. Good morning, Mr. Jennings. Seward, this won't do. You don't suspect, Mr. I President. do not, but let us be plain. No man can say how wisely, but Providence has brought me to the leadership of this country with a task before me greater than that which rested on Washington himself. When I made my cabinet, you were the first man I chose. I do not regret it. I think I never shall. But remember, faith earns faith. What is it? Why didn't this man come to see me? He thought my word might bear more weight with you than his. Your word for what? Discretion about Fort Sumter. Discretion? It's devastating, this thought of civil war. It is. You think I'm less sensible of that than you. War should be impossible. But you can only make it impossible by destroying its causes. If we withdraw from Fort Sumter, we do nothing to destroy that cause. We can only destroy it by convincing the southern states that secession is a betrayal of their trust. Please, God, we may do so. Has there perhaps been some timidity in making all this clear to the country? Timidity? You are talking of discretion. I mean that perhaps our policy has not been sufficiently defined. And have you not concurred in all our decisions? So, you may think I'm simple, but I can see your mind working as plainly as you might see the innards of a clock. 
You can bring great gifts to this government with your zeal and your administrative experience and your love of men. Don't spoil it by thinking I've got a dull brain. Yes. I see. I've not been thinking quite clearly about it all. Mr. President, I beg your pardon. That's brave of you. Give me a hand. Come in. There's a messenger from Major Anderson, sir. He's ridden straight from Fort Sumter. All right, Hay. Bring him in. Yes, sir. Don't like the sound of it. One moment, Hay. Sir? Are there any gentlemen of the cabinet in the house? Uh, Mr. Chase and Mr. Blair, I believe, sir. My compliments to them, and will they be prepared to see me here at once if necessary? Send the same message to any other cabinet members you can find. Yes. So, Ed, we may have to decide now. Now, come in. Are you the messenger from Fort Sumter? Yes, sir. Word of mouth, sir. Well? Major Anderson presents his duty to the government. He can hold the fort three days more without provisions and reinforcements. Are things very bad at the fort? The Major says three days, sir. Most of us would have said 24 hours. I see. Thank you. Wait outside, please. Yes, sir. Three days, Seward, three days. My God. My God, Seward, we need great courage, great faith. There is a tide in the affairs of men. You read Shakespeare, Seward? Shakespeare? No. Uh. Uh, the cabinet is here, sir. Mr. Chase, Mr. Hook, and Mr. Wells. Show them in. Yes, sir. Well, good day, Mr. President. Good, good morning, morning, Mr. Wells, Mr. Hook. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, good morning Mr. Mr. President. How do you do, Mr. Seward? Something urgent? Let us be seated. <clears throat> gentlemen, we meet in a crisis, the most faithful, perhaps, that has ever faced any government in this country. Let me state it briefly. A message has just come from Anderson. We can hold Fort Sumter three days at most unless we send men and provisions. Mr. President, I consider that we should withdraw. Don't you see that to withdraw may postpone war, but that it will make it inevitable in the end? It is inevitable if we resist. I fear it will be so, but in that case we shall enter it with uncompromised principles. Mr. Chase? It is difficult, but on the whole my opinion is with yours, Mr. President. You, Seward? I respect your opinion, but I must differ. I charge you, all of you, to weigh this thing with all your understanding. To temporize now cannot, in my opinion, avert war. To speak plainly to the world and standing by our resolution to hold Fort Sumter with all our means and in a plain declaration that the Union must be preserved will leave us with a clean cause, simply and loyally supported. I tremble at the thought of war. But we have in our hands a sacred trust. It is threatened. Persuasion has failed. And I conceive it to be our duty to resist. To withhold supplies from Fort Sumter would, would be to deny that duty. Gentlemen. Gentlemen, the matter is before you. For sending men and provisions to Fort Sumter. Three. For immediate withdrawal. Five. Gentlemen, I may have to take upon myself the responsibility of overriding your vote. It will be for me to satisfy Congress and public opinion. Should I receive any resignations? Thank you for your consideration. Will you send in that messenger? Yes, sir. 
You sent for me, Mr. President? I did. Can you ride back to Fort Sumter at once? Yes, sir. Tell Major Anderson that we cannot reinforce him immediately. We haven't the men. Yes, sir. Say that the first convoy of supplies will leave Washington this evening. Yes, sir. Thank you. Whereas the laws of the United States have been for some time past and now are opposed, and the execution thereof obstructed in the states of South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas, by combinations too powerful to be suppressed by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings, or by the powers vested in the marshals by law, now, therefore, I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, in virtue of the power in me vested by the Constitution and the laws, have thought fit to call forth and do hereby call forth militia of the several states of the Union to the number of 75,000 in order to suppress said combinations and to cause the laws to be duly executed. Fellow citizens of the Senate, and the House of Representatives. The war continues. And it continues to develop that the insurrection is largely, if not exclusively, a war upon the first principle of popular government, the rights of the people. It is not needed nor fitting here that a general argument should be made in favor of popular institutions. But there is one point to which I ask a brief attention. It is assumed that labor is available only in connection with capital. That nobody labors unless somebody else owning capital somehow by the use of it induces him to labor. This assumed is next considered whether it is best that capital shall hire laborers and thus induce them to work by their own consent or buy them and drive them to it without their consent. Having proceeded that far, it is naturally concluded that all laborers are either hired laborers or what we call slaves. And further, it is assumed that whoever is once a hired laborer is fixed in that condition for life. Now, there is no such relation between capital and labor as assumed. Nor is there any such thing as a free man being fixed for life in the condition of a hired laborer. Both these assumptions are false, and all inferences from them are groundless. Labor is prior to and independent of capital. Capital is only the fruit of labor and could never have existed if labor had not first existed. No men living are more worthy to be trusted than these who toil up from poverty. Let them beware of surrendering a political power which they already possess and which, if surrendered, will surely be used to close the door of advancement against such as they, and to fix new disabilities and burdens upon them, till all of liberty shall be lost. Morning, gentlemen. I've just had my summons. Is there some special news? Yes. McClellan has defeated Lee at Antietam. 
It's our greatest success. They ought not to recover from it. The tide is turning. Have you seen the president, Mrs. Stanton? I've just been with him. What does he say? He only said at last. He's coming directly. Uh, He'll bring up his proclamation again. In my opinion, it's inopportune. I thought we had learnt by now that the president is the best man among us. There's a good deal of feeling against him everywhere, I find. He is the one man with character enough for this business. There are other opinions. Yes, but not here, surely, Mr. Hook. It's not for me to say. There are some who would have acted differently. And you may depend upon it that they would not have acted so wisely, Mr. Hook. I don't altogether agree with the president. He's the only man I should agree with at all. No. Is Lee's army broken? Not yet, but it is in grave danger. Why doesn't the president come when we think this news was nothing? I must say I'm anxious to know what he has to say about it all. I shall oppose it if it comes up. He may say nothing about it. I think he will. And that's the first half of the Mercury Theater on the Air, an hour-long broadcast of Abraham Lincoln starring Orson Welles, also in the cast Ray Collins, Agnes Moorhead, and Carl Swenson. A fellow Carl, although he spelled it with a K, Lisa. Yeah, that's just That's wrong. just not acceptable. No, no. And that's a sustained show over CBS. Let's take a break, then it's more here on Hollywood 360. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari. Next time, it's the conclusion to this hour-long broadcast of Abraham Lincoln on the Mercury Theater on the Air. Then it's part one of My Friend Irma. That's next time here on Hollywood 360. We'll see you then.